is the Amazon Planet Podcast, episode 33. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast, I have two good friends and colleagues, Dr. Amanda Maluski and Dr. Joe Sweeney. And we had a chance to write an article together that I think is pretty appropriate for now. We'll get into that in just a second. But first, I just want to welcome my guests, Amanda and Joe. Hey, how are y'all? Hey, Joel, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invite. I'm excited to talk about our work together. Yeah, Joel, thank you for this. This is great. Thanks. It's fantastic to see uh, your faces as I do my uh, my introduction. Bit, you know, thinking about your smiling faces, it's so good to, to have us together because we did lots of meeting together talking about this article. But first, can you just introduce yourself? Amanda, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, my uh, official title is I'm an assistant research scientist. I work at the University of Michigan. And so majority of my work is um, dedicated to studying teaching, particularly secondary mathematics teaching and trying to understand how teachers make decisions, their rationality, with particular focus on trying to investigate um, teachers' math the mathematical practice um, of responding to students' mathematical contributions. And just so trying to understand um, how teachers teachers reason about the things that students say or students do in class and um, how they make decisions about how to move forward. Cool. And Joe? All right. Yeah, well, I'm uh, Joe Sweeney. I'm the director of the Mississippi Teacher Corps at the University of Mississippi. And I'm also a program coordinator for the Master's of Arts and Teaching program. Um, both of those are alternate route programs that uh, where we train teachers. Uh, for the teacher corps, we actually place teachers in critical shortage areas in Mississippi, uh, typically in, in rural areas, but we also place in, in Jackson and Meridian. Um, and so we train them over the summer and uh, they, they commit to teaching for two years in the program. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's what I do. Awesome, thank you. And again, thanks for joining me. And so we got together a while ago and we wrote an article called On Ramps to Professional Practice Selecting and Implementing Digital Technologies for Virtual Field Experiences. That came out in 2018, but we worked on it for a while before that. And that was in the Contemporary Issues in Technology and Teacher Education Journal. Um, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. But before we do, uh, just a quick disclaimer, in no way we'll be able to communicate the whole value of the article. And even if we did, it'd be from our perspective. In other words, if you like what you hear, go read the article for yourself. It's actually open access. You can get it right to it. And we're going to put a link to it at the show notes at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 33. So how did this thing come together? I was trying to think about it. What, how did this article come to be? And how did I mean, I know I'm the I think I'm the connector between the two because I work with Joe at the University of Mississippi and Amanda. We worked together on a project, but then I can't remember quite how it all came together. Does anybody have any recollection? Joe. Yeah, so it was something that had started with you. Um, you started the idea and the concept for it. Um, you brought me in. Uh, we worked on it for a little while, and then uh, then we brought Amanda in because we saw that her expertise fit really well with what was happening. So it, it that happened over, I think, a couple months at least. That's my, Joe, that's my recollection. And I know, Joe, I mean, because I know we we talked about it. Now it's all coming back. You know, this being old, it's like all of a sudden the sparks start flying. The engine gets run a little bit. But like your background in educational technology and like your deep thinking about it and how you leverage it within your own teaching, I know that was big on us starting here. And then Amanda, do you have any recollection about how this came together? 
Yeah, so I think you and I had shared a lot of conversations around virtual field placements based on a paper that you had written prior to this one, Joel, um, and just recounting similarities between that work that you were doing at University of Mississippi and some work that we do at the University of Michigan with in-service teachers, where we put teachers in sort of pods together to almost do a version of lesson study, imagining together how a lesson could unfold um, in something that we call story circles, and they use storyboards to help them to visualize. So I think it was in some ways a, a, your fascination and my fascination with your work and the similarities between that brought me into that space, as well as my connection with the University of Michigan lesson sketch tool. Yeah, and I think, you know, just a, a little bit of I, more even to back up a little bit about what uh, this is. And so we're all interested in training up teachers. And so thinking about how do we do that and how can we use technology to do that? And that's what this, you know, the article came to be is is like thinking like, well, if we have these technologies and we have the option, opportunities to use technologies in order to facilitate the training of teachers, how do we use it well? And I think that that's kind of like the main impetus of all this is like, how do we use it well? And how do we make choices? And, and what are the things available? And I remember, from my perspective, I had um, experience at the University of Wisconsin, where I was with uh, um, Erica and Richard Halverson in a like a seminar class where we talked about this design framework, um, where we talked about the things that get designed for use in learning, right? So learn, they would say education is designed for learning, or right? And so we have something, so we're some experience that we're designing and what goes into it, what are the intentions that we design into it and what actually happens when it comes out. And so really thinking about like these technologies and things that we'll talk about in a second are things that get put into place in between uh, you know, teachers, students, and, and they're you know, kind of learning content, learning how to teach and what's good about them? What's bad about them? What 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 do they take up in it? Like, you know, hey, we meant for them to do this, but they actually do this, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, this this article was, uh, you know, after I was saying to uh, Amanda before we got on, is that I, I like this article. I think it was written pretty well. I mean, well, and we spent enough time on it too to to get it to the place where it was actually uh, published in a journal. So, but why is it important now? So, like, and that was my impetus. Was, like I think to have this podcast episode was I felt that there's some things important now and there's some agreement to that that we needed to share this piece and I don't know does anybody want to jump in on that why why do we even talk about this article now if it's two years old and we're talking about technology I think one of the uh, sort of more obvious reasons is with everything that's happened societally with COVID and the need to shelter in place in the spring as well as across the summer, it really shakes, I think, teacher educators down to the core when you um, have spent the last, what, 10 years convincing ourselves that practice is in being access to practice and classrooms is so core to training up teachers. Um, and so I think at the time that we wrote this, it was more like, there might be instances where you also want to do that work virtually, and there might be good reasons, independent of COVID, that you really want to do this work virtually. But it seems like um, with COVID, there's really been a turn by not just people like us that think you might want to do this, but also sort of holistically across the field because we're sort of forced into a place where you, you might have to do this because having access to brick and mortar classrooms um, is not super accessible for a lot of institutions right now. Um, many K-12 institutions don't want one extra body in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. It creates that sort of extra risk, even if they're meeting in person. And if they're meeting virtually, then the question becomes, is that uh, consistent enough with the thing that we're actually trying to train them to do? I'm not sure that 
we have wholesale said we're, we're going to do K-12 education from now on virtually. And so if, if the placement becomes a virtual one, how to, how to teach elementary kids through a computer screen, um, I'm not sure it really prepares them well for face-to-face -face instruction. And so this virtual, having a virtual option to sort of simulate face-to-face -face instruction during this time feels really attractive and like a, a, a solution to a problem we didn't know we had at the time that we wrote this article. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's, you know, two things that Amanda said, um, have, having your programs shaken to the core in terms of how you train teachers is completely true because you know, we, with my program, we were forced to go completely online, whereas everything we've ever done has always been in person. Um, and so it, it went from like kind of what Amanda was saying, uh, as she mentioned this as well, it, it, going from a suggestion, like you, you might want to consider this to, we have to do this now. Like we, I don't, I don't have a choice. We have to find ways in which to um, train teachers that, that involve virtual uh, training. And so, yeah, that's definitely within the context. It, it made, makes this article so much more relevant um, than I think when we were writing it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of basically just kind of recap what, what Amanda yeah. said, but, um, but yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, even like thinking about our current reality at the University of Mississippi, we have a shortened semester and, you know, you have all these schools, I mean, from uh, the undergraduate perspective, I know Joe is dealing with, uh, you know, the the um, the alternate route uh, where people are in jobs and things like that. But in the undergraduate world where we have a shortened semester, we have, you know, you could have quarantine pre-service teachers that are being exposed either through, you know, their own social interactions through family, but even, even through the school where, you know, pre-service teachers, teachers, students, even whole classes are being quarantined. And so it's like, without some sort of technologically mediated experience where students or teachers are getting the practice, these pre-service teachers need to get the practice in order to help them move more central in this community of practice of teaching, right? So like we're, we're, we're in this, you know, we're trying to figure out, we've got some, some rookies, how do we get some rookies, some experience <laughs> running with the ball? And so how do we do that? And so we're trying to think like, how do we use technology in order to do that? And so, there is technology out there and we'll talk about some of them and just like, just to grab at them, just to grab at them, but really to be mindful and thinking about what, what are the things we want in that technology versus just, Oh, we got to put something in place and just, you know, hastily grabbing some, but actually how do we be mindful about that? And that actually jumps right into our categories. So the high five uh, categories is like, we pick out, some learnings from the article, like after reading it. And again, one of the things I learned is, I think we wrote a pretty good article, but one of the things I learned is just this idea of, um, of intentional, of intention, like having intention with, with the technology and thinking about what, what do we want uh, for this thing? So like, you know, the different experiences that we're gonna be talking about, like what technology would be useful to, to have that and, and, to, to fulfill the, the intentions um, or fulfill what we want to have happen with our, with our pre-service teachers. And that was one thing that really stood out to me is this idea of, you know, putting forward intention with this stuff. I don't know what was something who wants to go first, who, who feels really. Um, I went first go. last time. So I'll let Joe go. All right. <laughs> sure. Uh, so yeah, kind of going along with that in terms of choosing technology. So one thing that we had to do before we did uh, our virtual summer school this year was choose simply the um, the meeting 
uh, how we would meet virtually in those classrooms. So would we use Google Meet? It came down to Google Meet and Zoom. And so um, one thing that in, in kind of revisiting this article was, you know, how you evaluate those things and, and what we ended up doing. So we had eight different classrooms. Uh, so we have eight different lead teachers um, deciding on, on what, what platform we were going to use. And what we ended up doing, uh, which was interesting, was allowing them to, to pick what they wanted to use uh, because it, we were kind of split down the middle on, on which one to use because both had pros and cons. And, and uh, you know, those aren't, uh, you know, kind of going out a little bit outside of uh, the on-ramps uh, that we're talking about, but it, right. in terms of choosing technology, like right. it was it was really interesting to go through that process. Um, it could, and because the other thing I thought about is sometimes you don't have that choice. Like sometimes you're not evaluating. So I know with us using Teach Live, which is, I just found out today is, is now immersion. Um, that's something that's available to us already. So it's, I'm not, I'm not picking from a lot of different options. I, I'm going with what's available. Um, so, you know, and same, same thing with, with Zoom and Google Meet, those were what was available and, and accessible to us. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it was just really interesting to re revisit the article and think about that because even within that specific context, there was different opinions on, on what would work best with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like one of the um, things that I learned through the writing process was about this Halverson and Halverson framework and the way it can be applied to consider different kinds of um, considerations one might need to make when deciding between these two um, otherwise seemingly similar uh, platforms. Oftentimes, a lesson sketch gets compared or lesson sketch to pick gets compared with Teach Live. Um, and there's some surfacey things that I could, I think you could say that are quite different, like how much it costs and how easy it is to set it up and those sorts of things. But I think these are sort of um, the analysis that was done inside of this manuscript with the affordance of the Halverson's framework is getting more to the core of what are the affordances at a pedagogical level, like what, what sort of things, um, what sort of opportunities for learning one opens up that might not be open and the other one. Um, and so I really appreciated that sort of perspective and felt like I, um, I'm anxious to find another place to use that framework, but I also um, refer back to this now and when I'm talking with other people about what might be the critical differences between an environment like Mersion versus an environment like Depict. Um, for me, one of the most critical, at least in my own work, is the opportunity that Depict creates for clients to author students and author text that's coming out of students' mouths. And so that can be annoying if all you want is for the teacher to be practicing the teacher side. But oftentimes I think a big part of the rationality that goes with teaching and what needs to be developed is the ability to anticipate um, a variety of things that students um, might do given a particular question. I think that also creates a certain kind of challenge. So we, um, I've talked about this thing that we do with in-service teachers where we use storyboarding and we have some hesitation about using that with novices without some additional support or resources because not, whether novices can actually imagine the full gamut of the kinds of things that teachers, that students would do or whether they just imagine what they would do, I think yeah. is, a, is a real question. And so I think neither one of these tools, I think in and of themselves are the answers, but they bring with them certain kinds of constraints that the teacher educator needs to think about. So in lesson sketch depict, for example, I think the teacher educator needs to think about what to do with the problem of pre-service teachers or novice teachers 
anticipating too um, narrowly or not, not, not going deep enough with thinking about what kids might do in a moment. Yeah, so maybe, and this is a, a good chance to, um, as Scott was going to go into, the one thing that I remember from this was a lot of definitions and like we, we define things. And so one thing we had these, these um, we had technological platforms that we would have that would create these virtual field experiences, right? And so, um, and these virtual, and I have, I'm going right from the article, virtual field experience is a mechanism that mediates the practice of teaching and teacher behaviors through interactions with virtual students. And so these happen in two different ways within our, um, or we, the two platforms we looked at is Teach Live or Immersion, as it's now called, and then uh, Lesson Sketch through the Depict tool, okay? And so just a little, and I'm gonna, I'll define them and see if you can tell me how well I do. Uh, so Teach Live or Immersion is you um, work with virtual avatars where on the other side, there's an actor and an actor who's acting out for five students. These five students have characteristics, defined characteristics, defined ways of interacting in a classroom. And you are in front of a big screen and you teach to them. And, you know, as you, they look at you, they're moving around the school, the person can you know, look at a video, but the person basically is making each of that one enactor is making those students do certain things uh, within the classroom, react to what you're saying. But it's like a mini classroom that you then interact. It's almost like a video game, it feels like. Um, and then with uh, Lesson Sketch, it is more, as, as uh, Amanda was saying, more storyboards, more like a, it's almost like you're interacting with or creating a comic book. Um, that you're then using that as an experience in order to see like, oh, what are students saying? What is teachers saying? What, if I'm the teacher, what am I gonna, how am I gonna interact in this situation? So those are the two platforms that we looked at. How did I do on describing them? Did I miss anything? That sounded good to me. Amanda, I know you-, you Yeah, I, that, sounds, I, that sounds right. I would say I'm not clear whether I, I'm not sure I would call depict a platform, but I understand in the way that you're using it. So there, along with certain actions, I think depict can become the kind of platform. I usually refer to it as a tool because I think it can be used in so many ways, but yeah. A tool within the lesson sketch platform. How about that? Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and then, so, um, so those are the two things that we looked at. And so like, you know, another learning I had was, I mean, just like, just with what, Perfect, man. I couldn't have set you up like that was like a Top Gun and volleyball, and like you just spiked it down on me. So like the that was perfect with regards to definitions. We really did a lot with thinking about definitions, even thinking about the definition of all the different definitions of practice that we talked about, like practice of you know the the practice of teaching versus individual practices that you do within teach. And then there's another one that I'm messing. Uh, but like even all these definitions that we put forward in the article, and we really got careful in thinking about them and in, in like, what is a virtual field experience? What are these different things? What are these features that we're looking at to really define them? So you can point at them and say, that is it, or that's not it, right? And so those are, that was something that I really took over. Like, I really appreciated the definitions that came out of the article. And I think that's something that we can, um, that I definitely learned from that experience, but then also it's something now I can point to in thinking about, you know, uh, what, what do these technologies offer when we're trying to help teachers learn how to teach? What's another learning y'all have? I think in reading through the article a second time, um, I was really captivated um, by some of the literature that we um, named. And some of it is literature that either you, Joel, or you, Joe brought. And so I was learning about that literature as we were writing. 
but with the current cir circumstances um, of COVID and all the ways that that's affected schools, a lot of that literature became much more interesting to me. Like I, I have some wonderings about like, how could we use what we've learned from these kinds of studies I didn't know about before, which is where um, teacher educators are were before COVID taking their pre-service teachers to these sort of locations that were remote through video conferencing, having them interact with students that very unlike the students in the geographic region where the university resides, but maybe taking them across the country to teach other kinds of students or to see other kinds of schools and teaching um, happening in faraway places. Um, that feels like really a sort of an interesting um, opportunity right now. Um, so at universities where perhaps placements and practice is quite challenging, um, one, the other side of that coin might be there's opportunities, like there's no really good reason for us to be necessarily staying with the local schools that are right around the university, as opposed to taking this as an opportunity to establish new kinds of relationships with K-12 institutions across the country or across the world, to be thinking differently about what education could look like. So the second read on the paper for me, or the, the this read, the more recent read for me, made some of these other work really pop in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I mean, that just makes me think, should we, should, should we have like in our undergrad experience, like just some, for, for argument's sake, should we have a zoom teaching experience? Like, would it be good to like, part of your placement is you are going to do a virtual experience where you're going to teach maybe a small number of students via, via zoom, like teach them lessons in order to figure out like, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, because like there's a whole country of teachers that had to figure that out on the fly um, yep. that had never done that before. So Yeah, and I think I, a lot of them are are relying on sort of resident experts that also don't wouldn't identify themselves as experts. But yeah, mm -hmm. I think there's lots of teachers right now that wish they had had some training and how to use these sorts of tools. Yeah, if you're one month ahead and thinking about this stuff, you are an expert. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's that's what it was, right? Well, yeah, and two things to go with that. One um, part that struck me in the article that was very, still very relevant, there was a Darlene Hammond um, article that talked about making sure that your uh, field placements mirror what the students want to do eventually. Um, and I'm, 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 maybe, I'm trying to paraphrase that best I can. Uh, but it basically this concept that what they're going to do in the future, um, you know, should be very similar to what they're doing now it, with the on-ramps. Um, and so, yeah, having those virtual experiences, whether it's local, whether it's um, some, someplace far away, um, that's really important. And then it also ties into, should they have a virtual experience? Um, and, and I think, you know, in, in now, yes, absolutely. Uh, because that is something that they're, for the foreseeable future, they're going to have to be doing that. So one, one really interesting thing about the virtual summer school that we did, uh, that we, we just experienced, um, a lot of our teachers, even though they're first year teachers, they went to their schools in some respects as now the expert. And so they're doing a lot of um, professional development on Nearpod, on, on you know, instructional techniques in the virtual setting, because they actually did that with real yeah. students over the summer, which hadn't been intentionally done uh, in, in many places. And so that's you know I don't I don't know of any other instance where we had our first year teachers in the fall doing professional development for their schools, um, so that's that's something that was definitely different. But um, another thing I wrote down you know the struggle to find quality field placements, 
is real. Like, you know, now, and it, it's always been like that. And especially I noticed, you know, that's something that I, when revisiting the article when it talked about, you know, rural areas or areas just where there's not field placements available, um, having that virtual option is, is definitely appealing. Right. And so you're not being constrained. I mean, so like, you know, if, if you had an ability to, you know, place someone using Zoom and they're, they're already doing practices that you want them to see, like, you're not constrained by, like, ah, can they drive there? You know, <laughs> like, like you can, yeah. you can open it up a little bit too, right? And to mm -hmm. see like what, what, where people can go. And yeah, just to, and just to jump on, uh, going back to the definition thing again, like this idea of on-ramps, you know, we, we said that in the title of the article, and again, we have a definition of it. On-ramp refers to those experience that provides novices with a means to practice teaching-related skills and settings of reduced complexity prior to culminating clinical experiences such as student teaching. Basically, how do we get them up to speed to just do what Joe said, do the kind of teaching we want them to do? these virtual spaces can be designed in order to do just that. Like we're, we're setting you up for success to do the kind of teaching we want you to do in, in these full-blown clinical experiences. The smaller scale, reduced complexity, digital virtual experience is something that can be that on-ramp. So that's, those, are, those are so good, like bringing those all together. Anything else on high, high oh, sorry, man, uh, go for so, it. So I'm ho hopeful that we're not always going to be stuck in sort of this environment, though that it's not, it's not hundred percent clear, but um, where we are all sheltered at home or um, have very limited access to school buildings. I still think there is a really important role for these sort of virtual field experiences on ramping experiences that are distinct from the kind of work that happens in schools. And so in the article, we had talked a little bit about um, for sure, there's really good work of putting kids in schools with uh, the needed kind of support, kids, sorry, putting pre-service teachers, novice teachers in schools with the sort of needed support, knowing that they're not yet ready to engage um, with real kids unsupervised. But that sort of work is really hard to sustain and do well. Um, the more normative thing is to sort of send people off in many different directions and they come back in the math teacher or the teacher educator is sort of left to sort of make sense of the accounts that the pre-service teacher creates of the classroom as opposed to actually being able to interact with the actual thing and the fact that they've got you know 23 pre-service teachers that all have different experiences it's hard to bring that together to some kind of shared learning and so these virtual on-ramps that we've talked about in these paper in this paper I think we've also made an argument for what are some of the affordances of creating a common text for pre-service teachers to have a common experience? And then that becomes a common text that can be studied, analyzed, broken down, a place to go back and practice again, as well as um, other kinds of affordances of being able to sort of create environments that are distinct from the sort of typical norms of schooling that we're trying to change. And so representing sort of uncommon situations to teach pre-service teachers how to act in those situations or how to engage in those situations or how to create those situations, I think is a really huge affordance of virtual place settings, um, virtual field experiences as, as we've talked about them here. So even beyond COVID, I do think that the substance of this article, the argument there, I think is still a really compelling one. I'm gonna do a shameless plug for an article that I wrote about Azul's room. And uh, I was in the math teacher educator, but it was like doing exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it was like, I wanted to take the conversation from, hey, a traditional math classroom is rows and columns. Everyone's looking at the board, you know, that sort of thing versus, you know, and, and it was an experience I had. It was like when I entered into a classroom as a working teacher, got hired for a job and I went in 
And all of a sudden, everyone was in groups. And they work in groups and they explore a problem together. And the teacher's not really doing a lot of time. They're like guiding on the side. They're asking questions. They're or just observing and seeing what math comes out of this designed experience. You facilitate it, really. And it was like, they changed the default, right? Amount, like, no, no, no. We're in groups. This is what we do. And now this is a conversation. Not like, not like uh, I'm up front and I'm doing the rows and columns teaching. Like, oh, it'd be nice if we worked in groups every now and then. No, no, no. We're in groups. Like that's what we're, the, this is the default classroom is that, and so like to have Azul's room was basically a place in lesson sketch where I used to pick to create this simplified classroom where, no, this is a, we're going to explore problems. This is the teacher is not up there talking a lot. The, the group is doing the work and they're facilitating it. And it was like, okay, this is, this is, we have to think like, what would teaching like this look like? And because we're starting the conversation here. And so that's one of those things where we can do that with these on-ramps. And again, going back to what Joe said, we, the kind of teaching we want them to see, we can start them there. You know, we can start them there with that conversation. Yeah, I think in addition to that, the ability to sort of um, add or remove complexity, like which complexity are we going to be dealing with at different stages in the program or different stages in the class, I think is an added affordance to these uh, virtual field experiences. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, just to go along with what you're both saying, the recording aspect of that too, uh, it was something we mentioned in the article, uh, but I think it's such an underrated tool being able to record and ha then have the, the teacher uh, reflect on that and you know, watch it be able to, to wind it back. Um, and, and then making those recordings available to other people uh, who are also evaluating that that teacher. Because uh, we used, uh, uh, well, it was Teach Lab over the summer uh, immersion. And um, because we wanted them to get more experience kind of having this classroom experience because we were training teachers and they weren't actually in a physical classroom. They were all virtual. And so we, we wanted to, to use it in that capacity. And so we could record those and then have uh, someone look at them later to give feedback and then meet with them. Um, and it's such a, I, I, I know, you know, it's, it's been used in teaching for a long time, so it's nothing new, but it's, it's such a powerful way to, to, to reflect. And then we have them go back and watch those videos later too. So we, we are um, typically about halfway through the program, we have them watch themselves teach um, it, you know, those beginning recordings and, and reflect on that. And, and that's always a good experience for them too, because sometimes the growth that you see in teaching takes a while. Um, so being able to revisit those recordings is, is really um, an eye-opening experience for them. Yeah, so that was one of those features where we talked about the, what did we say? What was that feature? Um, I think it was called recordability, if I'm not mistaken. But what we did, it was- Document or replay experience. That, that's really what to do is, that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because that's something we need to consider, right? If we're, if we're choosing one of these things, how can we, again, capture in order for reflective purposes or for, you know, collaborative purposes or whatnot. Um, so uh, unless there's any more learnings that people wanted to get out there. There are, but we need to leave some for the audience too. Yes, so yes. Make sure yeah, to read it and share back with us. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be great. So here's a question though. So now, you know, usually we'd like, you know, reflect, hey, what, did, what we learned here, but actually let's just dive into it. How have you used virtual field experiences? So... I know both of you have, so who wants to go? For, I know we've heard a little bit about each of them. Um, Joe, you want to go first, a little bit more elaboration on your uh, the experience you had this summer? Sure. So we had um, all of our teachers, um, you know, we had a, a six weeks 
well, we have seven weeks to train them. We had five weeks with actual students. Uh, but within that, we also used Teach Live. Uh, and we had them uh, basically conduct a, a short lesson. I think they were typically 15, 20 minutes long, uh, with the emphasis being on uh, addressing student uh, behaviors. Uh, so it's basically a, you know, working with classroom management. Um, so they they engaged in those remotely because everyone was remote. Um, so that's the first time that Teach, teach Live typically the the people would come in person to a, a classroom and they could see the screen and then see the, the five students there. Um, but we were doing that remotely so they could see it on their screen from home. Uh, so they could conduct those lessons and interact with the, with the students in that capacity. And then from there, uh, those were recorded and we had our, our lead teachers watch those and then meet with each of, the, uh, each of our teacher, uh, teachers in training to uh, administer feedback, um, and, and kind of walk through that. And they, everyone did that. Uh, they did at least two sessions over the summer. So they did one kind of toward the beginning and one toward the end uh, so that they could uh, you know, implement that feedback and, and have a chance to do better the second time. So that's, that's, that's how we were using uh, uh, Teach Live over the summer. Yeah, so for us, one of the primary ways, it sounds like, Joe, you were working with in-service teachers then, or was it pre-service teachers, just out of curiosity? It's it's a little bit of both. So they are teaching, it, their field experience is the, the summer school. And so they're not, they're not officially certified yet. They get certified at the end of the summer, um, mm -hmm. but they are teaching quite a few lessons uh, and, and working with, student, with, with actual students. Yeah, they're, and they're heading so they're, into a they're, classroom. They're pre-service, yeah. They're heading into a job at, the, at, at fall. Like, so it's like, they're right before they're, they're yeah the line between whether you're certified or not is very thin yeah, yeah. very thin <laughs> yeah. so but they are pre-service yeah great so we have done some ongoing work that started well before covid but continued through covid and it continues this fall with um, a program that we call story circles we've done some work with it with pre-service teachers but more often than that we're working with in-service teachers that are looking to get professional development or in-service teachers that are um sort of in a position of thinking about certification or different kinds of certification or teaching and learning to teach different, differently than they're currently teaching. Um, and so in that context, very, I, the, I think metaphor is really helpful of lesson study. So gathering teachers really together around a lesson, a particular task, where we um, sort of agree at the start that the task is going to be taught in a, sort of an open way and there's going to be a discussion format in the middle of it and there's going to be a particular goal that we've agreed on, not because there couldn't be other goals, but because in order to be in the same space, like lesson study, you sort of have to agree on some basic things about what the lesson is going to look like. And then from there, um, we engage teachers in trying to say what they think will happen between the end of the launch, which is making it clear that this is an open task, and the end of the lesson, which is that whole class discussion, and supporting teachers' practices to learn how to do, how to manage a productive mathematical discussion around an open task, um, which is not an easy thing, um, as we know, and lots of teachers feel like they don't know how to do that, even experienced teachers. And so in that process of story circles, once we get teachers to that place where they've reviewed the task, they've reviewed sort of the goal of the lesson and what's gonna happen at the beginning, then we simply ask the question, how would this unfold? What do you think is gonna happen? And of course they have different ideas about that. And so they share those ideas. Those ideas move from sort of scripting of actions that could happen. Um, and sometimes those are very detailed to the moment. And sometimes those are much larger scripts like talking over large segments of time 
to visualizing what they script out loud for one another so that they can see what others are interpreting as what they're saying. Because oftentimes teachers talk past one another. They say next we would, I don't know, they, they, they say lots of things that like next I would help students understand. We probably wouldn't even visualize that. We say, what do you mean by that? What, how do you help students understand? Or and next we're gonna go over student work. So we might put the work up on the board, but not the student. And then they protest when they see the visualization of, wait, the kid's supposed to be up there. And somebody else will say, that's not what I would do. And so just the opportunity to visualize in and of itself creates opportunities for the teacher to realize that what they're saying and what, the way it's being interpreted by others in the room is not the same thing. And so we should get into agreement about more specific details about how that work is done. And that usually sends us into some form of um, collective professional argumentation. Um, so teachers have an opportunity to think about there's not just one thing that you could do in a moment, or there's not just one thing that a student might do in a moment, but there's multiple things and it's important to talk about those and talk about the different affordances and constraints. Um, more recently within that work, and so the circle continues that by, by the way, so they engage in argumentation and then we script more things and we think about all the ways the stories could branch, all the ways the story, the lesson could unfold. More recently, we've been tinkering with um, ways that the facilitator can have resources to help teachers expand their vision. So providing teachers with particularly hard moments, contingent, we call them contingency cards, where we hand them a storyboard of a moment that is not yet in their storyline. Nobody's talked about it, but we know it's a common misconception. It's going to come up. And so we represent a student at the board with that misconception and say, can you find a place for this in your storyline? And then they have to cope with it. And sometimes they don't want to find, they'll say things like that'll never happen. Or I don't know what I'd do if that would happen. So I'd never bring that kid up to the board. And that's where some of the real learning has happened. Um, it's been fun to be in moments, fun and challenging to be in moments where people are saying things like I've been teaching for eight years and I don't know how I deal with that. And I know I've seen it, but I'm just now realizing it's a misconception. Um, I, I haven't put it up on the board because I didn't really know what to do with it, but I didn't even realize it was a misconception, nor do I know how to deal with it. And so having the collective support of a group to think together about how to deal with some of the things that come up when you do open tasks. Um, as we know, it's really challenging for teachers to deal with that kind of openness um, because of the things that I'm naming. Um, they don't necessarily know how to deal with all the crazy things that can come up in a, in a lesson like that. So. That gets me, I mean, so like, like yeah, I, and I get excited when you talk about story circles, because it gets me thinking of like, almost like improv and things like that, like where, you know, as people are, well, one, they're trying to design a scene together. But like, when you do something like that, when you the contingency card, when you throw in something, it's like, you can't just say no, right? It's like, a, you got to have like an improv rule or law is like, it's a yes, and or yes, but like, yeah, yeah. like, and then now how do we how do we use that, that? The, the student has provided something, something. I always like to think of it as a gift. They've given you a gift and you can't refuse the gift. You got to take the gift and like, what are you going to do with the gift, right? And so if it is some sort of thinking, like how do you build on the thinking? Like, how do you see the asset behind it? I always use the example of my son was uh, given, like was asked like how many sides are in a rectangle? And he, you know, he, they, uh, um, and he said six. And he said, and, and like, I saw it on the paper and six, like, and like, I wonder what the teacher did with that because, when he said six, he was, had a tile, right? So he counted the sides, but they're actually faces of it and like of the rectangle. And it was like, so like that comes in like, but what does a teacher do with it? Right. What does a teacher do with that? Because I see it. I'm like, I know he knows the answer. 
Like, yeah. so like, but what, how do I use the energy to help us? Like, oh, we could talk about faces. We could talk about, we could talk about definitions of things, even though they're not there yet. But like those sorts of things where, how do we use these experiences to then move forward the teaching to get to that goal that you're talking about? Like, I mean, I, I think those are valuable, um, valuable experiences that get us to this um, better place, right? Where they're actually probably questioning some of their assumptions and things like that, or even like some of their experiences. Yeah, it's been fun for us because we we're playing the role of sort of sitting back and watching them construct stories and then noticing, okay, in their practice as a group, they're not yet comfortable doing this or they're not doing this. So for another example is we had a group of teachers that were sort of resistant to using moves like where you do this, I don't know, some people call it a reflective toss or invitation out to the kids. So an answer comes in and instead of teacher evaluating it, they take a moment to say like what others think or can somebody else comment on that? Or like they were just sort of resistant to do that sort of move of building a dialogue that would be more student to student rather than teacher to student. And so rather than telling them, listen, we think you should do this, we were trying to think how could we perturb that sort of way of practice. And so another contingency card we've put in front of them is representing student to student dialogue. You've got a student Mm. at the board and you've got a student sitting in a seat and the student sitting at the seat is commenting on the kid's work on the board. And we'll say, not what do you do next? But we say, how did this happen? What would the teacher have to do in order for this to make be sensible uh, to happen? And some teachers say, well, that would happen automatically. That's how, my, that's how I set up the norms in my class. And then there's conversation about that. And other teachers would say, that would never happen automatically. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to do something. We say, well, what is that something? Well, I'd probably have to ask kids to do that. Yeah, yeah. What would that look like? And then they think, I, then they start talking about, I, I don't usually ask kids to do that. I wonder why and what are the affordances and constraints and what are the risks and what am I avoiding by not asking kids to think on or build on one another's ideas. So it's been fun to sort of try to think about how do we corner them into a place that they learn something that we want them to learn without telling them you should do this thing instead of that thing. It makes me think what you just said. I mean, it's like th- these things offer us a way to like perturb our practice, right? Like the same thing with Joe, when you're talking about teach live, but maybe some of these people think like, oh, it teaches a certain thing. Well, okay, well, let's throw you into teach live and we're going to give you a shove, but you're in a safe place, right? You're not hurting anyone, right? And, and you're, you're maybe questioning that this is a lot better to do this here than actually in front of live kids, which, you know, eventually your student, your teachers went and go, and, and also to make sure that you do get perturbed in certain ways, or you do get shoved a little bit in certain ways so that you, your, your, your abilities get pushed out a little bit. So this is, is all good. And I, I know, um, I'll, you know, refer back to the Azul's, uh, uh, article uh, Azul's room article I'll put a link in the show notes you can see how I've used uh, virtual field experiences but basically similar to what Joe is I, I would have my students go into immersion record that experience and then they can reflect on it it's one of those really valuable experiences where they can look at themselves and and see how they interact with students what assumptions are they doing what are the things that they um, you know might not have seen because they were in the moment right and be able to have that recordability is is pretty important so let's let's move on. Uh, what would be the major critique of this article? I really wish that we had um, the ability, more space, <laughs> to talk about other kinds of tools that are out there. Um, I'm really fascinated by some of the work that's been happening by people like Julie Amador and Carl Clasco yep. around the use of these. Um, this animation tool called Go Animate, where they really, it's not a tool that's been built for teacher education, but it's been sort of commandeered for that purpose. And 
I find that fascinating. Um, one thing that I know that's different that I wonder how they cope with um, in Go Animate is um, the cartoon characters have just a lot more detail um, that allow you to individualize the students. Um, I know the Lesson Sketch platform has been adding elements of that, but cautiously because we don't want to overwhelm um, users yeah. with having to, you know, put hairstyles on kids with, you know, adding differences that might not make a difference and then trying to figure out what differences actually might make a difference. And that's not an easy line to figure out. Um, so th th that's something sort of interesting is coming into an environment that has a lot of differences in the ways you can represent individual characters that we're, I'm pretty sure probably don't make a difference for the profession of teaching and then trying to sort through which ones of those to attend to and dealing with pre-service teachers that, you know, spend a lot of time making their characters look really pretty <laughs> as opposed to yeah. spending a lot of time focused on like, how do they deal? How do they cope with that? Um, that's a really fascinating question for me. And I think the same thing um, with regards to immersion there you have set characters, um, char characteristics about students and uh, whether or not, like something I don't actually know about immersion is whether or not that can be made more flexible and teachers can make other kinds of choices either to dial down that complexity or dial up that complexity. So I wish we had had more space just to explore the, the different environments, but it seems like in the end that was a different paper. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Joe, how about you? So for me, I'm not sure if this fits within the context of the article in terms of something we should have written about, um, but I think it deserves a little bit of uh, discussion is this idea that these on-ramps are a really brief moment in time. And so one thing that's really important as a teacher that, that I've seen from my experience in, in evaluating teachers and, and, and watching them work with kids, how important it is to build rapport and relationships with kids. Yes. And within... Um, the context of, of like teach live and, and this may be a, Amanda in your work you may be able to get a little bit more to this um, but I know with teach live if they're just doing a 15-20 minute thing um, we're, we're, there's two things that happen one you can't really build rapport with a, an avatar child in that time and then the other thing is there's a premium is placed on a solution in the moment so if, mm -hmm. if, if there's a behavior that you want to correct you're, you're expected to correct that behavior immediately and then get the, get the student back on track. Whereas the reality is in the actual classroom, you're, you're leveraging and, and you're, you're using that rapport and those relationships to help guide the students in a, in a certain direction. And, and so I feel like that's it's something to just, at least for, for the Teach Live experience and, and how we used it, wasn't possible. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I think that's, yeah. No, that's good. That's yeah, I would agree with that. I actually think in Joel's work, there's a little bit of um, focus on that with with um, Azul's room because there's consistent interaction with the same set of students. And so those kind of conversations, at least my sense of talking to Joel is, are possible, but maybe Joel, you could say more about that. Yeah, I think one of the is like trying to take a, like building up a relationship with a student. And so one of the th ways we use it is you're going to have a problem solving interview. And so you're going to like storyboard basically what does it look like to ask a certain student some questions? And we, the student is red and the teacher's Azul. Well, you basically put yourself in Azul's shoes and then you put your a math mate who you have a relationship with from a field experience into the shoes of red. And then you have this conversation. You kind of like imagine what is it going to look like? And then 
And then you are going to go have that conversation eventually. And then you get to see like, well, how does your prediction match your depiction, right? Um, or, or how does your prediction, it's a prediction depiction. How does a prediction match what actually happened with the student? You get, students get surprised, right? And so there's, there is sort of that rapport building that Joe's talking about that, that we can leverage within the field experience and where, you know, students were like, well, I, I, I almost, I authored in some assumptions about the student that were wrong. Like I thought they would struggle with this problem and they were, did, they flew through it. Like I had to like really make these numbers bigger, more challenging for the students actually use negatives or they did multiplication, like all this sort of stuff. So seeing that sort of thing. And, and I love that Joe, that that's a, that's a great critique. And then even just thinking, uh, you know, Amanda, you were talking about like the authorability of students, right? What are the what is the ability of to change up characteristics and and so the, between the different platforms and thinking about that if you're going to do something like this, from for me my my critique is that well, after this when people are actually do you know like full fledged where people are doing this sort of thing, there's probably going to be so many more characteristics that are important to people and things like that that it's actually would be good to get this out there again so that people can actually use it and like oh this you know, the protocol needs to change all the different features that you talked about. There's a few more that you hadn't considered, or, you know, here's a better way to think about this feature and whatnot. So I think the critique is probably happening <laughs> right now as, as, as we're going. So um, I know we need to get going with the wrap up. How about the sum in seven? You have seven words that would sum up this article. It used to be sum it up for a seven-year-old, but my seven-year-old turned eight. So, but I, I didn't want to go over that. So When I saw that, I started actually writing a haiku, and then I thought, Joel's <laughs> going to cut this out. Oh, we love haikus. Come on, be creative. So, <laughs> so I only have the first part, and I guess I can try to fill in the rest, but it doesn't, I don't know. Again, this if you hear a silence after this, that means it's got cut. Um, so crickets, I had, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so I started with on-ramps. Here we are. That was the first line. And then I didn't, uh, so I kind of have to write the rest of it now, so... Um, <laughs> On-ramps help train our teachers. On-ramps are good things. That's my haiku. Love it. Love it, Joe. Thank you. Oh, gosh. I don't you think... can't see this, but Amanda's face <laughs> says that that needs to be cut. you got to cut that. Well, maybe. Uh, maybe I was thinking that. But uh, I think it was probably more like, oh, my gosh, I don't, I don't think I... Um, and well prepared to sum it up in seven words, but I think I might be able to sum it up for a seven-year-old, which is something like um, in the same way that students need opportunities to practice the kind of um, skills that we want them to have. Teachers need that same set of skills, the same opportunity to practice. And um, oftentimes teachers don't get to practice certain critical skills until they're in classrooms, which seems irresponsible. So I think that's how I'd explain it. Maybe, I don't know, seven, 10 year old. So I, I took the other front. Sorry. There, I'm not very good at limiting down to seven words. So I did seven words, but I have a symbol in it. So good use of tech is greater than uh, good tech. Good use well, actually of tech is greater than good tech. Good tech. So just like, be, just because something's fancy, some fancy technology, some, you know, I'm just going to use this fancy, but if I can actually be intentional in using, I can use some very simple technology. We had Jen Wolf on our podcast a few weeks ago, and she's just using Google slides in very creative ways with links and things. And versus like, you could use something really fancy, like a, 
Uh, like some of the things we see in our schools, like Seesaw and, you know, Google Cloud. I mean, and she's just, again, using Google Slides in very creative ways. And it's like, it's not the fanciest piece of technology you can have, but it's pretty powerful and the way and the intentionality that she's using it to do complex instructions. So really fancy ways of teaching, fancy, fancy ways of teaching. So that's good. Um, one, of, we got some experienced teachers here. Just what's one thing that you do that you're like, hey, you know what? I've done this for years and it's, it's something that's really helps my teaching. What's, what's one thing? What's one tip you got out there? Um, I'll go first. I, I put the asking why about everything that you do uh, related to teaching. So in, in terms of how this relates to the article, looking at why do you select this particular right. uh, technology? Uh, why, why are you doing this? And I think even more so now, um, just because I, I don't know if you've talked about your, your, um, the, the, what you were putting together in terms of, um, uh, resilient teaching, um, but basically boiling down your teaching to yeah. what is the basics, like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? And why <laughs> yeah. are we doing it? Like, mm-hmm. It's really like everything has, has really been uh, going back to what Amanda said. We've been shaken to the core of, of teaching. And so we have to figure out those fundamentals. And so I think it's asking why not just about bigger things, but also even smaller things like why did I pick this article for my students to read? Did I choose it because right. I, I, it did something for me or am I choosing it because I think it will help them? Am I choosing it because someone sent it to me who I respect? Like, why are we doing the things that we do? Mm-hmm. Um, choosing books, assignments, like everything, like just, just asking why and being very critical uh, uh, about the decisions, both big and small. Yeah. Excellent. How about you, Amanda? Um, so I think I, I'm going to answer that question more specifically around teaching teachers. Um, and I feel like I had two answers to this. I'll share one in more length and the second one a little briefer. But um, for me, I think the importance of practice as well as the importance of specific situations, pushing teachers and uh, both in-service and novice teachers when they talk about practice to do, do that in a way that's more specific. I think I do that in mathematics too, right? So when we teach math, we say like, what's the it? But um, I don't think we do enough of that in teaching. I think we have a lot of like what Shulman called propositional knowledge that's still floating around there and given to teachers as if it's interpretable. Maybe the newest one is something like teach using anti-racist practices. Like, what does that mean for a second grade teacher working in, you know, like the the context really matters. And that doesn't mean that we can't learn about practice. I think sometimes when people say context matters, they say things like, we can't possibly train people. They just have to be in the environment and learn from the environment. I don't think that's true either, but I think having ways to talk about context and uh, represent that in ways that it makes a difference And along with that, I think it's not just the actions that we want. It's really the teacher being able to um, have a broader sense of the rationality. So not just knowing what you would do, but also knowing what others would do and why um, helps inform what you would do and maybe change your mind about what you would do. Um, I think oftentimes teachers make decisions about what they would do before really understanding what not only others do, but also the rationality that undergirds that. And then I think the second thing, and this is probably more an artifact of the fact that I work with in-service teachers rather than pre-service teachers, but I think it's true in both contexts, this decentering from me, um, this 
realization, I think this is maybe teaching more generally, but realizing that the most important conversation is not the one that I'm having with the students, but the ones that students are having with each other or that teachers are having with one another in the ways that they can um, further their knowledge and learn to further their knowledge by learning to have certain kinds of discussions. I think teaching, maybe society in general, is a place where we're learning less. <laughs> we're, not, we're not really... Uh, we're, we're not doing very good recently of listening to one another and having discussions, but I think professional discussions and teaching is m maybe one of the most isolated uh, sort of professions, one of the places that people actually don't develop an ability to talk about professional practice beyond the kind of stuff that happens in faculty lounges. So for any kind of teacher, I think um, decentering on them having a conversation with me and recentering on them learning how to participate with other professionals and listen and share their rationality about practice so that they can grow across their whole career. All right. Well, that's good. Um, anything to promote from either of you? Who wants it? Joe, I know you got something to promote. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, I'm the director of the Mississippi Teacher Corps. Uh, we are a program that uh, we bring in people from uh, Mississippi and around the country uh, basically people who have uh, undergraduate degrees and who want to enter the teaching profession. Uh, profession. Um, it's a full scholarship program. Um, so uh, the commitment is uh, two years. So you teach for two years in a, in a critical shortage area uh, in exchange for, for that scholarship. And, and we also provide uh, quite a bit of support to our participants. So uh, if anyone out there is listening to this is, and would be interested or know someone that uh, would be interested, we'd, uh, we'd love to, um, uh, uh, you know, I can talk with them. Um, the, our most of our advertising is uh, via word of mouth. So um, we'll put a link in the show notes too, Joe. So. Sure, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, we are actively building simulations of practice based on some of the story circles work that we've done. Um, and so the contingency cards that I talked about, for example, we're um, thinking about those as ways to gather more information from a broader swath of teachers, not just those in story circles, like in Facebook posts and Twitter posts. And so we're, we're looking to recruit sort of groups of secondary mathematics teachers to participate with us and, you know, simulating certain lessons so that novices can learn by going through simulations rather than just by trying to do the lesson themselves for the first time. Um, and then we're also looking for K-12 mathematics teachers, secondary algebra and geometry teachers. Uh, we're step dipping our toe with COVID into something new of creating sort of modules where we're simulating whole class discussions for their students to participate in because if they're virtual um, at any point in the year, it's really hard to create that kind of whole class discussion across mm -hmm. this format or across like asynchronous formats. And so teachers that are teaching virtually this year for whatever reason, um, that are interested in trying to develop uh, skills for their students with regards to whole class discussion. We're interested in sort of partnering with teachers like that across the nation. Awesome. Well, thanks to two of you for uh, joining me and having a conversation. And, and hopefully that this is, a conversation is helpful to those out there that are engaging in this work and maybe even interesting for those that are not. And so that is all I have for this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Show notes for the podcast can be found at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 33. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review. You can subscribe to the Amazon Planet download containing teaching resources and updates from the Amazon Planet. Follow at Amazon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. You can also check out the Amazon Planet store or Amazon Planet bookshop. Links are in the footer at AmazonPlanet.com, where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. And in conclusion, thank you for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Thanks to Amanda and Joe for sharing their expertise. 
and for being willing to write an article with me. And thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace.